turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 in your Bibles. That text says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. About a half, uh, a week and a half ago, I was speaking at another local church in a special event that they were having, and I was asked, uh, along with a few other local pastors, to uh, speak on a passage of the Bible that was particularly meaningful to me personally, and and talk about it briefly. Uh, after thinking about it, praying about it, I settled on a passage from Hosea chapter two, and here's where the story gets interesting, because that same day that I'm about to preach. Uh, on Hosea 2 at this other church, um, Pastor Tim and I are in his office talking about this sermon series through First Peter and the text that I'll be preaching on uh, this weekend. And as we read it, we realize Peter's referencing uh, an Old Testament uh, chapter in, in verse 10. And guess what chapter he's referencing? Hosea chapter 2 of all the chapters in the Bible. I just love how God does stuff like that. Isn't that cool? So to the Jewish reader of of Peter's letter, verse 10 would have evoked that story, the story of Hosea and God's abundant, transforming mercy. So let me prime your minds in the same way. God, he called his prophet Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer who was entrenched in prostitution and adultery. And this was in order to vividly portray his relationship to his people. This is how he felt about his people who had become idolatrous. And as Gomer and Hosea had children together, God had them name them No Mercy and Not My People. Those were their names, which sounds a bit harsh and intense, but just you wait. In Hosea 2, one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible, God is speaking through Hosea, with this double meaning, of the, the two layers of Hosea's relationship to his adulterous bride and God's relationship to his idolatrous people. And he, he lists out the evils that they've done against him in verse 13, saying she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And then right after that, verse 14, he says, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she will answer as in the days of her youth at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Did you catch that transition? <laughs> she left me and forgot me. 
and went after her other lovers. Therefore, I will love her and allure her and speak tenderly to her. That is God's grace. Alluring his adulterous bride, just as he hung on a cross loving those who despised him and killed him. This is probably the greatest illustration of how, about how our salvation is not brought about by how good we are. Amen. It's God's initiative of love. We deserve wrath and we receive mercy. And God's grace, it's powerful enough to transform us, to change us, to make us into something else. Just like this passage says that through his initiative of love, him loving her in this powerful way, she comes to say, you are my husband once again. Through God's love, we come to not only serve him as Lord, but love him as husband. But let me read you a few more snippets from this chapter. And remember as I do, those, the names of those children. No mercy and not my people. God says, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. And I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he will say, you are my God. Shivers. What I love about Hosea puts it is that their identity has changed. Who these people were, even their names, were no mercy and not my people. But now they are something else. They are mercy receivers. And, and they are God's people. God's love changes who they are. God speaks a new identity over his wayward children, calling them to be his once more. He has mercy on those who deserve no mercy. And he calls them in love and they are changed. And they say to him, you are my God. And this is what Peter picks up in verse 10. See if you can catch the similarities. It's not hard it's, it's not hard uh, to see. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's love for you, for us, has fundamentally changed our identity. And that is what Peter's saying in this whole passage. There are truer things about you now. Here's something important for you to know about God and about the Bible. We are not called first and foremost to do. We're called first and foremost to be. If you're not sure what I mean, let me illustrate. There's a world of difference between someone asking you to take care of a child and someone asking you to be that child's mother or father. Sure, I can take care of a child. I can do that for a little while. But will you be this child's parent? That changes your whole life. That changes who you are. Which, of course, will affect the things you do. But it's much bigger than that. Much deeper. More powerful. And loss of this kind of distinction, 
I believe, is what leads to the epidemic of divorce and the degradation of marriage. Because instead of thinking of marriage as a calling to be, we think of it as something to do. It's just something you do. You get married. It's not something that changes who you are. You do it until, you know, you don't. We've shifted away from marriage being a God-given covenant that makes you become something different than what you were. You are now a husband or a wife. You are spiritually, physically, legally, really united. Jesus calls us to be. In a similar way, he calls us to be a certain kind of people, not just do certain things. We're not just called to pursue unity. We're called to be a chosen race. We're not just told to, to pray for others. We're called to be a royal priesthood. We're not just told to abstain from worldliness. We're called to be a holy nation. We're not just told to evangelize. We're called to be those who live in his marvelous light. We're not just told to have mercy. We're called to be those who have received such a great mercy. And as we become who God has called us to be and live fully into this new identity, then... Out of the overflow of who you are, you will live in certain ways and do certain things. We shouldn't think of this, though, as something we're hoping to be one day. We should think of these things as who we truly are right now. As St. Augustine puts it, God grants what he commands. He actually makes these things true of you. As a Christian, you are a part of a chosen race. You are a member of a royal priesthood. You are a citizen of a holy nation. You are those who have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is true of you. This is who you are. So, God, like a a father, like an earthly father, who sees his kids living out of alignment with who they are, he would take them aside and say, listen, you are a car. Cars don't speak that way. My last name's car, for those of you who don't. I'm not saying be an automobile. He's saying, you're a car. Cars don't speak that way, right? And God, our Heavenly Father, says the same thing. He says, you are part of my family. A family, a a royal family, as this passage says, royal, a royal family, a family precious and chosen. This is who you are. And as you believe this, as you grow in that belief, This new identity will shape every aspect of your being. And of course, at times we will live out of alignment with who we are. And that's when we need to remember. Remember who we are in our older brother, Jesus. And we look to him and we follow him and he will walk with you. Jesus calls us to be a new people. And this passage here is one of the most dense and profound places telling us who we now are in him. I love it. There's at least seven different ways he describes who we are in these two verses. I want to look at, at the two main things that they all have in common. As, as I look at these, I see two things that they all have in common. And they're summed up perfectly in the beginning of verse 10. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. These two truths. First, we have been united as a people. And second, the kind of people we now are is God's. Apostrophe S. I'll be saying God's a lot in this sermon, and I'm saying it's it's, uh, possessive, not plural, okay? So first, all these statements about our identity are about 
us being brought together as a people. Not just individuals, but a new people. He's wiping away all the ways we find distinction from one another. We may say we're of different nations. Nope, one nation in God. Well, maybe same nation, but different race? No, same race, he says. Same race, but different vocation. Nope, same vocation. Same vocation, but different bosses? Nope, same boss. Same boss, but, but we're each our own man. No, you are God's possession. These are the truest things about you now. If you wonder how something could be more true than another thing, I, I think something's more true whenever it's, the truth is, is more all-encompassing and more significant. Like it's true to say kind of that the earth is a ball, but is it as true as saying the earth is a planet? It's, more tr- it's, it's true that I'm a consumer of food, but it's more true of me that I'm a husband of Audrey. You may be white or black, but it's more true that you are a part of God's chosen race. You may be American or Mexican, but it's more true that you are of God's holy nation. You may work in the food industry or in the medical field, but it is more true that you are a part of his royal priesthood. You may be an individual that's able to decide how you will live, but in Christ it's far more true that you are no longer your own and there is an authority that you have surrendered your life to and that is God and now he shapes how we live. He flat out says you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You're not just an individual. You're a part of something bigger than yourself. And if you think about that and you internalize that and you believe that, It will fundamentally shape how you think and how you live. You are most fully your true self, he's saying, when you're not living only for yourself, but as one integral part of a whole, as a people. So that's the first thing that each of these have in common. And the second thing is even more significant. Each of these statements in their own unique and beautiful ways are telling us that we are God's. We are his in a way that we were not before. Chosen, he says. We are chosen by him and for him. Royal. We are part of the king's family. Holy. We are set apart. That's what holy means. Set apart for him. And perhaps most clearly, he he says, we are his own possession. We are God's. And this really isn't a popular idea. We want to live our own way. My way. As I, when I was in Nashville and I was doing my training to be a pastor, I heard uh, from three different stories from people telling me that uh, at a funeral, people wanted to play the, a certain Frank Sinatra song. And they had, to, they had to talk about how they had to put, share them away. And that song, you may know, is called My Way. It really is Frank Sinatra's worst song. It's unsubtle, it's sappy sounding, it's just not worthy of Sinatra's talent. And, and it's a shame that they played it at pretty much every tribute to him when he, when he died. It's a song that like, tries to speak up for self, self-possession and, and personal freedom, and it ends up sounding like the spoiled kids in Willy Wonka. I can't have time to read you the whole thing, but let me read you the last verse. He says, For what is a man? What has he got? If not himself, then he is not to say all the things he truly feels and not the words of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows, but I did it my way. What a tragic song. 
to sing at a funeral. This is the song of sin. Unkneeling. Self-centered. My way. Utterly contrary to the call of Christ. One of the most powerful calls to live a different kind of life is found in 1 Corinthians 6 when Paul says, You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You were purchased, he says. With, and we know what that price was. The infinitely costly blood of Jesus Christ. That means you belong to someone else. You are not your own. And this is good news because who you now belong to loves you more than, and better than you could ever love yourself. And in a more detailed way, that's what each of these statements from Peter are saying. He's saying, you are God's. And just like how verse 10 comes from that Old Testament story of Hosea, each one of these statements comes right from Old Testament passages. Passages speaking about Israel, the people God chose to be uniquely his. And Peter in saying in the, is saying that in Jesus, that incredible relationship is fulfilled in the church. Let me show you two of the main passages Peter's referencing. The first one, Exodus 19, 5 and 6, says this. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. Does that sound familiar? And right before that, he's talking about how he delivered them out of Egypt and the way God says it is how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you where? To myself. They were delivered out of slavery into the freedom of being gods. Here's another key passage Peter's referencing. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And this passage in particular talks about the chosenness of God, like, like Peter talked about the chosen race. And here's why this passage is so important in a conversation about being chosen. Because there's some who use the idea of election to become proud. And God will have none of that. Verse 7, he says, It was not because you were more in number than any of other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were fewest of all peoples. And then he says why he chose you. It is because the Lord loves you. So you see, he says, why did the Lord set his love on you? Because he loves you. It's a, one of the most beautiful circular arguments ever. It doesn't satisfy our vanity the way we want. I mean, we want to be chosen by people because we're great. That's what we really want most of the time. That's what romantic chemistry is, right? That, that, that uh, superficial feeling at the, the beginning of a relationship. It's largely ego. It's about you. That's why you're so, so excited when that happens. What's so thrilling and electrical about it is this person that you think is really great is into me. Me. They're responding to me. So deep down, that affirmation, that need for affirmation we have is being met, but it's superficial and it's, and it's really pride. And, and it feels wonderful. But what if you become less appealing for some reason? Like say you lose your sight. And then that kind of love won't last. Where then do you turn? 
That's exactly what happened to the poet George Matheson. He fell in love with a woman. He wanted to marry her. But he knew he had to tell her he was going blind. And when he did, he was shocked that she broke off the relationship. He felt like something inside him had died. And he went to write his heart as a good poet does. And he says the hymn that he penned, he says of this, I had the impression of having it dictated to me by some inward voice rather than working it out myself. And listen to the first verse. He says, Oh, love that will not let me go. I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. This is the kind of love we need. Love that will not let us go. Love that we can rest our weary souls in because it's not dependent or based on us, but flows from the depths of God's endlessly loving heart. God setting his love on us really ought to be a humbling reality. When Israel, and that's what happened in that text, when Israel was getting too big for their britches, God says, it's not because you were great that I chose you. In fact, you were less than everybody else. In a sense, God's saying, it's not you, it's me. But it's not a breakup. It's a covenant relationship, a covenant of love. And I once read that only God is able to humble us without humiliating us and able to exalt us without flattering us. And that is what he's doing by choosing us. By his own love. And what I love about these two passages uh, um, is that where Peter just says we are a people for his own possession, the, uh, God told Moses what kind of possession we are, right? What does he say in there? We're a treasured possession. A treasured one. We are his treasured He treasures us. Until you grasp that, really grasp that, everything you do in your religion, your, your morality, your ministry, you're always going to be uh, trying to make sure you're okay, you're good enough. You're going to be angling for uh, acceptance or advancement. And God wants you to trust that you're treasured. In fact, the Bible says he adopted us. We're treasured like a father treasures a child. That's why we're part of this royal priesthood, because we're a part of the king's family. That's what makes us royal. That's what makes anyone royal. We're chosen. We're treasured. We're royal. We're holy. When he says holy, holy literally means be set apart, made distinct. That's why this passage in Exodus, I love the way it says it, it doesn't just say that we're holy, it says we're holy to. Holy to the Lord your God. Set apart to Him. Holiness has a lot of different connotations today, but what holiness means in the Bible is being distinctly and completely God's. This is who we are. We are God's people. Once we were not a people. But now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy, but now we have received mercy. And it is that very mercy, that unearned love that made us God's people. And it's out of this identity that we now live. When I think about the idea of acting out of, out of your identity, living out who we really are, 
I think about a story I was told when I was a young Boy Scout on a camping trip. We were around a big bonfire uh, camp, uh, and a camp counselor or uh, scout leader guy was telling an American, a Native American parable that you've probably heard some version of. Uh, where a young man was sent from his village on a, on a quest for a vision, and he started to go up a mountain, and as the air got cooler, he came across a snake who was shivering, and the snake said, please help me, I can't move, I'm so cold that I can't, I can't make it down the mountain. So the boy said, no way, you're a snake, if I pick you up, you'll bite me. And the snake replied, no, I won't, I promise, I won't bite you if you only pick me up and get me down the mountain. So the young boy picked up the snake, and he carried him up to the top of the mountain, in search of his vision, they kind of were starting to feel like buddies, he felt like. And then he, he carries the snake back down the mountain, and as, as he's about to, to uh, put the snake down, the snake bites him. And he, and he says, now I'm going to die. What, why, why'd you do that? You bit me. You said that if I helped you, you wouldn't bite me. And the snake replies, but you knew what I was when you picked me up. Now, I don't know what they wanted us boys to learn. Maybe just be less trusting. In hindsight, it doesn't seem like a great lesson. But the, the story is a good picture of the biblical reality that we act out of who we really are. If you're a snake, you bite. Maybe not continuously or right away like the snake in the story, but inevitably you bite. Unless by some miracle you're made into something other than a snake. We by such a miracle, are made into something other than what we were. We have a new identity, and a snake's identity, if a snake's identity is is expressed in biting, what about a chosen and treasured people of priests? How is that identity expressed? Well, there's a purpose clause in the second half of verse 9 that tells us. It says that this new identity is true about us, that... You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's saying this is why you've been given this new identity, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. I love the way he talks about it with such extreme language. Darkness and marvelous light. And this isn't an isolated statement. Paul says something very similar in the beginning of Ephesians. He says that God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Why? To the praise of his glorious grace. And and it's beautiful, this idea that Peter puts forth of going from darkness to marvelous light. We sang a song that had that idea in it, didn't we? And for so many religious people, there's no darkness. There's no marvelous light. Just kind of a dim, cloudy dusk or dawn. When You hear it when people talk about their religion, if they talk about their religion at all. Oh, I'm not perfect. But, you know, I'm trying. That's so many people's religion. And you see how different that is? How different manageable imperfection is from utter darkness? How different trying hard is from marvelous light and glorious grace? If that's your view, there's nothing to to marvel at. There's no wonder. There's just meh. 
The scriptures are clear that the reality about who we are and who we were is a far more stark of a contrast. That our eyes were blinded and our hearts were hardened by inescapable darkness. And that we ourselves were black holes of sin and selfishness contributing to the darkness of the world. But Jesus, oh Jesus, his light overpowered the darkness by consuming it. He took into himself all of our darkness and sin and death to the point of dying for us in our place. But his light could not be fully extinguished. And he rose from the dead, bringing us with him. As Colossians puts it, he transferred us out of the domain of darkness into his kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so we marvel at his amazing grace that loved us out of lostness and filled us with light and life. And this wonder is essential to our purpose. Which, can we just pause there for a second? Because that in itself is wonderful. Right? If you're a professor, intellect is essential to your purpose. If you're a musician, skill is essential to your purpose. If you're an athlete, physical fitness is essential to your purpose. If you're a Christian, wonder is essential to your purpose. Being filled with awe and wonder at the profound goodness of God towards you, that's your qualification to fulfill your purpose. That's a calling I want to be a part of. And I think that's what keeps us from sharing our faith and inviting others to believe. And it's also what makes us so bad at it at times. Because we think, again, in terms of do rather than be. You have to do this task rather than be a person of the light. But just listen to how Jeremiah says this. He says, I made, God speaking, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah cling to me, declares the Lord, that they may be for me, be for me, a people a name, a praise, and a glory. We are called to be a praise and a glory. It's who we are. In his reflections on the Psalms, C.S. Lewis, he explained that he was kind of, as he read through the Psalms, he was initially uh, burdened by the frequent exhortation to praise God. He writes this. He says, why, incidentally, did praising God so often consist in telling other people to praise him? That's a great question. And he answers it in a very profound way. It's a little long, but this is such an important passage. So please try and listen. He says, I realize that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised the most, while the cranks and misfits and malcontents praised the least. Praise almost seemed to be inner health made audible. I also noticed that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it with terms like, isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think it magnificent? 
We all do that. The psalmist, he says, in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Okay, now here comes the most important part I want you to hear. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that keep, lovers keep telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it's expressed. End of quote. Isn't that so true? We, when we're really struck by something in a meaningful way, we have to share it with someone. Otherwise, our joy is incomplete. And it's frustrating. This means... That what Peter's talking about, this proclamation of his excellencies, our mission is actually God inviting us to complete our joy by praising him to others. Because praise is the overflow and completion of joy. And this is what makes our faith so powerful and winsome. What a great God we serve who gives us such an amazing position as proclaimer priests. And then he says in order to fulfill that mission, the great burden you have to bear is to be happy in him and overflow with joy. That's why Psalm 51, David prays, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. That should be our prayer today. There is joy to be had. Joy in being loved in this unbelievable way. Matheson doesn't mind me butchering his poem. It's love that will not let us go. Moving us to give back the life we owe. In this love we can rest our weary souls because from God's ocean depths it flows. Making us richer and fuller grow. There is joy to be had in this love through the incredible sacrifice of Jesus that rescued us out of darkness into his marvelous light, taking us no mercies and having mercy on us, taking us not my peoples and saying, you are my people. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you We thank you for your grace through your Son to make us your treasured people. Would you open our eyes to the truth of who we are and and the ways that we're living out of alignment with who you've called us to be. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and put a song of praise in our hearts and in our mouths. Give us grace to repent and turn to you now and look to you always. And we pray in Jesus Christ's wonderful name. Amen.